Solomon, it's been ages, man. I'm really happy you were able to join us on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, one of the reasons I reached out to you is because one, you and I share a lot of views on this space we call data. We have, uh, as the kids would say, opinions. And two, you know, you've been very, very active on LinkedIn lately, which is when I realized that, oh, Solomon, I haven't heard from him in a while. He's launching a new business. I do want to talk about delivery layer in a bit, because I think that's important for the crowd to know who you are, where you're coming from and all of that. But before we get to where you are now, Let's take a couple of minutes to talk about where you're from, how you got to this field we call AI, data science, machine learning, whatever it is this week. And also, quite frankly, who is Solomon? I'll give you my whole uh, background and how I ended up as a data person. So um, I, I come from the ages before data science was a career that people, people thought about doing uh, when they were uh, studying. So I, I fell into it. Uh, I I had uh, studied uh, operations research in school, and then I went and went to work in finance as like a securities analyst, doing more on, more on the business side. Uh, and it, I was working at this really great entrepreneurial company called Wall Street Access, and it was sort of um, entrepreneurial in that they would start like new trading desks and new hedge funds and new new financial products. And I got really interested and I was always into, uh, you know, starting new things and building things. And I, I got to a little bit of an inflection point there where I thought to myself, of, of the cool things that were going to happen in my life, where where were those things happening? And it was really on the technology side, and I, I was seeing a lot of opportunity around technology. So I quit my job. I started, uh, I taught myself web programming. I started a SaaS company that totally crashed and burned. Uh, that was right when the Twilio APIs came out. And this was sort of like, you know, the idea was it was like a it was a business to help people record their memoirs. I got a memoir from my great grandfather that was very meaningful. And so the idea was you could have like a phone conversation with your relative with prompts on what what questions to ask them and what stories they can tell you. And then all of that would get recorded and transcribed in the back end. And, and uh, you know, interesting idea, but uh, terrible business. And then I got engaged. <laughs> and so uh, I was looking for what came next. And I ended up at this startup uh, called Paperless Post in uh, New York, and the uh, this was this was sort of right as data science started to become a thing. And so back then, you know, they came out with the you know, HBR article that you know data science was this new amazing thing, and the the whole thesis was if only you could find someone that had a a mix of uh, statistics skills and business skills and programming skills all wrapped up in one person, then you could have this thing called a data scientist that would be able to do all of these new, cool, complex things to solve all your business problems. But good luck finding people like that because they don't really exist. And my startup was thinking about like what it meant to have a data team. And they were looking at like BI engineers and I raised my hand and I said, Hey, you know what, instead of going that route, why don't you let me do it? And because I've got all of this background and I think I would do a great job. And they said, okay. And, and that's how I got into data. And, um, 
you know, I've spent the last decade plus uh, leading data teams, building data businesses. I was at Paperless Post for a little while. I moved on to this consulting company called Bionic, which was, I would say, pretty early in the sort of venture innovation, venture studio uh, type of type of uh, space. They got bought by Accenture. Really great company. Uh, super amazing client list, super small company. We worked with big companies to help them think about new businesses to start. Uh, and I focused on data businesses. So, you know, as you imagine, big companies can sometimes have a lot of ideas about potential businesses, some of which make sense from the technical side about like what the value that you're driving and what mm-hmm. the business impact is going to be. Some of them just wouldn't wouldn't work so well for various reasons. So so that was our job at Bionic. Uh, I spent about a year and a half there. And then I went on to Nielsen, where uh, I ran the Nielsen sports business, which is uh, in the sports sponsorship space. So if you think about it, sports sponsorship is about a $60 billion a year industry. You've got brands that are uh, wanting to get their name out there by being connected to different teams and rights holders. And Nielsen, we help provide data to to measure impact in that space. So for example, we uh, we analyze essentially every second of televised professional sports to see what brands are on the screen. And then we uh, equate that to uh, the value that you would have had to pay as a brand if you wanted to buy a commercial for that broadcast. So the Super Bowl is coming up in a bit. I don't know exactly when this is going to get released, but um, but but uh, you know, there's obviously there's obviously a huge impact that that sports can have and the stories in sports can have on brands. And so that's that's how we measured it. Uh, from Nielsen. I went to a uh, unicorn SaaS startup called Helium 10, which is like data measurement tooling for Amazon ecosystem. And I was there for a little bit and uh, ultimately decided to leave to go start a delivery layer. And that's, that's where, that's where I am now. That's how I ended up as a data person. And that's my career story. That, that is good to hear. I have, so many questions to ask you about your path. There are a couple of things I didn't realize had taken place in your career path, even though we've known each other, it seems like forever. Uh, if memory serves, I think we met when you were still at Paperless Post. So that's been kind of a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I would love to hear a little bit about delivery layer. And then I'd love to circle back to a couple of things about your background. The idea, the idea behind delivery layer is this. Some of the, or probably the most important data in your company is actually the data that's leaving your company. And it's counterintuitive, but uh, if you think about it, data doesn't accidentally leave your company, right? If you're sending it to someone, overwhelmingly, it's because those are your clients and they're paying for it, right? They're paying, right. They're paying for it in some way, but maybe it's your supply chain partners. And if you want to have if you want to have the right truck end up at the right place at the right time in order to provide the products that your company provides, you need to get data to someone. Otherwise, it's not going to happen, right? So this is all mission-critical data. And what I've found uh, in my experience uh, is that that is the least supported data in the industry, all of the tools in the modern data world are focused on internal data analytics. 
and they make this assumption around permissions and privacy and access control and user interface and user experience that doesn't hold true when you deal with external data. And so the idea behind delivery layer is what if you treated this use case as a real first class citizen? So that so for example, for a company like where I came from at Nielsen, right? The, you spend billions of dollars creating this data set. And then you need to build platforms to have companies access that data set via uh, visualization, via API. You, can't, you, you don't get to choose that. Your customers choose that, right? Uh, if you have 100 customers, 70% of them want a dashboard, 30% of them will want an API. And so the idea behind delivery layer is like actually like helping you run a business like that, as opposed to just providing a technology solution for a slice of it. And so delivery layer, the idea is it's sort of uh, the interface between the data inside your company and the way that you need to get it outside your company to your clients, uh, as a product, as, you know, there's so many different ways that this happens. And, 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 and that's delivery layer. So essentially what you're saying is that Delivery layer attacks this issue of this insight data being an undervalued asset, right? Companies just don't seem to be putting as much effort into supporting it and getting it out there. And your take is, let's promote this, like you said, make it a first-class citizen and put the effort into making this happen, right? Yeah. I mean, there, it's definitely underutilized. I mean, I, I, I speak to, and understandably so, because the reality is that right now, what ends up happening is that most mo most of this this type of data delivery for important data happens via custom software. So if it's a if it's a big enough big enough use case, you spin up uh, an engineering team or multiple engineering teams, and then they run this as an application. And you're making a hundred million dollars, and you're spending. Eight million or nine million dollars on engineers in order to support that business, and that's 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 what happens right now in the industry from a from a technology perspective. I, I personally have experienced a lot of the the good parts of that, but also the downsides. And the thesis behind delivery layer is that there's not a lot of custom needs around these types of applications, and actually companies generally get themselves into trouble by building custom software for these applications because it's never really good enough for their use case and it's an ever-moving goalpost. So for example, I know a lot of companies that would take a use case like this and try to hack together some sort of, for example, embedded BI solution. And then the challenge is that that embedded BI solution works great for your first 10 customers that are smaller, but suddenly you have a big enterprise customer and they want it not just via a visualization, they want it with an API. And suddenly you find yourself with an entire extra engineering team that is building out an API platform as, as well as a totally separate permissions platform because you need a way to sync the permissions from your API across. It, it just gets it just gets really challenging. And so this is a common use case. It, 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 and it, well, let me let me take a step back. 
this is not a common use case. This is something that 90, 95% of data people don't particularly need to care about, right? Most of most of data work is for internal use cases. But for the five or 10% of the time that you have this problem, it's like a really big problem. So that's the idea behind delivery layer. Yeah, and you, the point you raised a second ago about companies getting into custom software, and this is something I saw early in my career when I was writing more software before I was doing a lot of data work, is that most companies don't realize once you start creating custom software, you become a software shop. And once that software is being used by someone outside of your company, you have become a software product shop. And that means you have a lot of extra roles to consider, a lot of extra tasks and processes and procedures to consider as you're rolling out this software and it becomes its own business off to the side. So to your point, if you're pumping in all this cash to something that you're not monetizing as well as you could or should, it's time to sit back and ask yourself like some basic numbers games of why are we doing this again? What's our ROI? What are our alternatives? So I think what you're doing with delivery layer, makes perfect sense. And also there are a couple of things in your background, uh, maybe I'm projecting here that I think led you to all of these decisions around delivery layer. So step one, you say you started your career as a securities analyst in the financial space. And what I found is that people I know who have worked in the financial space, who also worked in the technology side of things, we have a certain view. We, we constantly take this view of, okay, what's, what's my investment? What's my return on that investment? What am I getting out of this for what I'm putting in? And is this worth my time? So do you feel that your time working as a securities analyst has played a strong role in how you view your work today and how you view the data space in general. Yeah, so much. I mean, I mean, it it was a great foundation to start a career on. And there there's like a lot of people who start it, their career in finance either on the security side, investment banking, what whatever however they do it. Um and it it's a really valuable set of skills and mindsets I think that you get from that experience. And I'm I'm really grateful to have started there because as you said, in finance, there I, I think there's a couple things. Number one, there's a super strong sort of work ethic, go-getter attitude, and and also uh also focus on what matters that is that it, that 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 you don't necessarily get in other industries. You can you can find it with individual bosses. You can find it with certain teams that they have that culture. But I think finance has that culture in general, and I I, I think that it gives you a lot of a lot of benefits uh, as just sort of at the beginning of your career. And when it comes to the impact side of things what's unique about finance as an industry is it's it's sort of it's is is how quantifiable the impact that you have is and so unlike in other industries where maybe you had an impact maybe you didn't maybe maybe you're driving value maybe you're not in the finance industry there there becomes an answer and you're either good at getting to the right answer, which is making more money, or you're not good at getting to the right answer, which is not making money. And there's no, there's not a lot of fluff there. And I think that 
being able to avoid a lot of the fluffy data stuff in my career has been really important because when I come into a company or when I'm working on something, it's pretty much like, can I help make money or can I not? And if I can, then I'm going to try to jump in and maximize that. And if I can't, then that's fine. I'd rather not do anything because I just, I just think that that's that's the goal of and and making money is not the only goal of data right i've done a lot of civic data work i've done data work for other things but when it comes to corporate data work yes that is the only goal like and so so that's that's a that's that's something that when i started was uh in finance that sort of came naturally to me other people i think don't learn that lesson sometimes until they're a lot more senior. And as a result, they flounder a bit. Yeah, I can see that. And I, I, I love the way you summarized that uh, working in the financial space. The way I typically summarize it is, and to, to, to be clear for our listeners, I started my career working in the investment space. So working with the traders and the quants and where we have a lot of money flying around and all that sort of thing. And I say that, you know, working in that space, I learned very early that the money is the KPI. Right. A lot of businesses, I think, fall into trouble because they're trying to build that key performance indicator, but they then have to translate that KPI into the bottom line. And when you have that that distance between those two, sometimes things can get fuzzy. Sometimes things can get lost. Whereas if you're in most financial spaces, uh, whether it's trading or lending or that sort of thing or credit, whatever, the idea is that the money that's coming in that's what we measure. And what's interesting about that is it also brings about a certain sense of perspective and realism and even humility, because you can walk up to a trading desk and just ask flat out, hey, Solomon, are you up or you down today? Right. And there's no, well, I kind of feel up. I can't, no, it's just, look, do you have more money today than you did yesterday? Yes or no? Your answer is either yes, great, please, Solomon, keep doing that, or no, okay, Solomon, hey, let's let's take a step back and think about what you're doing, maybe change paths or something. And it is interesting how when I left the financial space the first time, I would walk into other businesses and, you know, to your point, sometimes I would encounter businesses that didn't seem as interested in making the money, or at least they didn't seem as interested in meeting some KPI, which was weird to me. Yeah, I think that's part of the fun of working in this space. You get to see companies of all types. The other question I had as far as your background, you also mentioned operations research. I'm curious what role that has played in who you are today professionally. Okay, great question. So when I left college, like many people, I thought I would never use my degree again. I mean, I, I was a somewhat technical person. So I was going to continue to use technical skills, but the specifics of operations research, I didn't think I was going to use much again. And very truthfully, even in my data career, I have not really used much specifically on operations research. Like I haven't done a lot of like queuing theory, like like for people for, for and for listeners that don't know, like and 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 I don't know how much of it has changed since I studied operations research, but a lot of what I did were sort of mathematical models around queuing theory and optimal order quantity values, and and uh, if you 
are American airlines and need to make a $2 billion investment into a new maintenance facility? Like where in the country should you put that so you can minimize the number of flights or minim minim minimize the number of expenses with the amount of airplanes you expect to fly, right? Like integer programming. Those are not typical business. Those are, okay, those are all business questions, but typically day-to-day, -day, you don't use a lot of operations research type of specific things, even in business. I've used it occasionally. And like every technical thing you learn in college that you have to use occasionally 15 years later, I, I know that it exists. And then as soon as I need to remember the specifics of how it works, I look up in uh the Wikipedia or my old books. And I say, okay, here's the equation. Here's what I need to do. I don't, I don't know it all offhand. Um, what was extremely helpful in what I use all the time is uh, statistics. And just in general, after a couple years of, of studying operations research and just general statistics through college, having a good intuitive understanding of statistics and about when someone comes to me with data, how do I think about that data in terms of some of the things that, that could be wrong about it, frankly, more than the things that could be, could be right about it. The, the right, the right case is, is it's sort of like, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? How does it all interact with each other? That has been extremely helpful and not even just in individual analyses, but even for general decision-making uh, around companies, because the amount of times that you take some sort of basic basic fact and then use it in ways that you wouldn't necessarily be able to in a valid way, is it happens all the time, right? So having a rigor around statistical thinking has been extremely important. And I think based on what you've just said and based on everything we've covered about your background, I think that's a logical stepping point into today's main topic, because something you have a lot of experience doing, as you've mentioned, is building data products. And one of the things I love doing in this podcast is bringing people in to talk about some of the, shall we say, unexpected or counterintuitive things about some of the work, right? Because a lot of people out there might assume, oh, well, you have data, package it up, it's a data product, you're done, right? I mean, how, how tough could it be? Based on what we talked about before, I have a hunch that you've seen you've seen this go a few different ways beyond the standard package it up, get it out the door. How how hard can it be, right? Yeah, I mean, I so the the thing about data products is that um, they're 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 different than your standard products, and the core. The core element of that difference is that data and the um most many data products, it depends. Like in this case, I'm talking specifically about machine learning products, but like let, let's like it, it it gets a little complicated, but high level regular software, if you think about it, is deterministic. Uh -huh. You have a function that you want to do some calculation, you want to add up a plus b. You are, if you put if you put five and two into that function, you're always going to get the same answer. And you're always going to get the exact right answer. Data products in general, especially machine learning and AI products, they're probabilistic. 
And that's a huge leap. And it allows you to do so many things that you can't do with 100% certainty. And that's amazing. But the downside of that is that you no longer have deterministic software, which means that things fail in ways that are unintuitive to people. And that has wide ranging implications. And that's just on the, on the, on the, at the, at the end state in terms of how, how the products are different. They're also different in the sort of, uh, pre-product state, because in general with data products, you're relying on data coming in to drive data going out. And like any, any supply chain process, what that means is that suddenly you have quality issues and monitoring and a whole bunch of other things that you need to care about that you didn't need to care about previously in deterministic products. And so again, like um, I will, I will, I will share some stories. Uh, all right. So, so we had a uh, product at Nielsen called uh, where we would analyze the social feeds for, for teams and leagues. And then they would report back to their brand partners. Oh, look at, look at the value that we were driving off of these social posts or the social engagement that you would get from posts where we shared a video or a highlight clip. And it had, you know, the, the big Nike logo or the, the, the big, the the big brand that was a prominent component of that social social post. Um, when you when you have a product like that, you rely on APIs from all of these social networks, which which are not necessarily so reliable, right? Twitter, I believe, just shut down their API uh, to to free users just the other day. Uh, not that not that we were a free user of that one, but but e even then, you rely on these. Uh, these companies to send you their data. We had one example of a company that changed the meaning of one of the one of the the API results only in one country. So in every other country in the world, they would send back like 1.5 m, and that would mean 1.5 million. But for whatever reason, in this country, when they sent back 1.5 m, it meant 1.5 thousand. And figuring out how to how to work in in environments where you've got your foundational elements that are a little shaky, then you it, it, which 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 have implications as you process them, right? Because you might not have thought that you needed to care about what country your API result was for. And so when that changes, you now have to re-architect your entire ingestion pipeline to check, and handle things differently for different countries that might even involve different ways of storing the data because you might be storing data in S3 buckets with a certain format. Like there's a whole bunch of implications around these types of changes for things that you can't control. None of that exists in deterministic software. No, I think what you're saying there reminds me of in the financial space, sometimes companies will change their ticker symbol due to a merger or that sort of thing. Or yeah. there might be some sort of stock split where today the price is $100 a share and tomorrow they have four times as many shares at $25 a share. And so if you aren't keeping track of the news from these companies where they announced we're going to have a four for one stock split tomorrow, you will think, 
oh, hey, this company's stock price just took a nosedive. It went from 100 to 25 overnight. What's going on? Should we sell by whatever? The reason I bring that up is because, at least in the stock market, there's some formality around that. It's easier for us to pick up on that. What about this partner you mentioned where they just decided M today means milli for a thousand instead of a million? Like how did you have to find that out the hard way or did someone at least try to warn you so you'd have a chance to fix it first? Oh, no, we found about it. We found out about it the hard way. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Sorry, I was I was hoping that would not go there. No. All right. And that's and that's that, that that's like that that is that is um uh a frankly minor thing that that happened, but it just illustrates illustrates the point. Um, you know, the other the other side about probabilistic software is around customer expectations, because mm -hmm. even if you have something that is right ninety nine percent of the time, well, if you do that a hundred times, what that means is that it is an extremely high likelihood that your customer is going to see something very wrong during a specific experience that they have. And, and, and so understanding even how your customers are going to react to receiving probabilistic information and understanding the trade-offs there is a, is a crucial element that has to be a core part of your entire product because what it means, and as data people listening to this will know, having a having a model that's ninety nine percent right, you might think from the technical side, "Wow, this is a like a, th this is unrealistically good," but from a customer experience for your customers, there are there are ways that that ninety nine percent right can be unreasonably bad for them. Ninety nine percent not getting into an accident in, as a driver means that you're getting into multiple accidents every single year. So so you you need to really think through the implications of what it means to have a probabilistic product because it really uh, is is an important differentiation between data products and regular products. No, I can underscore that as well. I mean, you talked about these products being deterministic in their or deterministic versus probabilistic in their execution. Absolutely. There's also deterministic versus probabilistic in their creation. You know, one of the examples I love to give to people when comparing software to AI products. And just to take a step back, I don't think anyone is better or worse than the other. They're just created differently. They're used in different ways. But the example I love to give is if I were to ask you, can we build a website where people input their information and they get some information back, whatever, whatever, the answer is yes, we can do that. There is some fuzziness around how long it'll take depending on the specific requirements, but it can be done. Whereas if I were to ask you instead, hey, Solomon, can we build a model to predict customer churn? The answer is uh, maybe. <laughs> like We're not going to know until we get there until we have to optimize we have to optimize how we build data products according to that probabilistic nature. And the part of that also means being able to sit back and say, you know what, we have to account for the possibility that this doesn't work and we have to have a plan B. Have you encountered a fair amount of that in your career as well? Yes. So, so it's, it's one of the, one of the things that is counterintuitive about particularly machine learning products is that, you kind of don't know what you're going to get until the product is pretty much built. 
And so I, I, uh, I have this, um, there's this amazing, I've always loved this joke about software engineering where it's like you finish the first 90% and then you finish the next 90% because that last 10% ends up taking the same amount of time as the first 90% in, in data products. It's, it's that plus when you get to the end, you finally know whether all the work you've done so far yields a good result enough to ship as a data product or not. And many times you don't actually know that until the end. And there are many best practices and anybody who's doing this for any non-trivial use case um, is, 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 is generally doing those best practices around building proof of concepts and making sure that you've got some reasonable expectations going into a big build. Because if you're gonna spend a couple million dollars building out a data product, you're gonna you're gonna you're not just gonna try to put your finger in the air and hope it works out at the end. Although some people have done that with disastrous results, uh, so it it happens. But if you're good, you you're doing some sort of proof of concept to try to get realistic about uh, what you're gonna see at the end. But even then. Many times when you're not working with the entire data set, you're not working with uh, the full the, 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 the full picture. When you get that full picture back, what you see is not good enough to ship to clients. And then you need to completely revisit what you're doing and how you're doing it. And it can be an undetermined amount of time before it's it's ready because you've got a specific bar for what's needed. Like I'll I'll give an example. I made this joke on LinkedIn the other day about the um 80% fresca problem for machine learning, which is that if your machine learning model says that 80% of Americans have drank fresca in the last 6 weeks, no matter what else it says, no, nothing no one is ever going to believe that model and no one's ever going to want to buy that product and that was literally exactly this type of situation where we had built a product, we had done a proof like a proof of concept around whether a certain approach was going to work for uh, for 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 a, a data product that we were looking to build, mm-hmm. and it was like, you know what, it, it it looks pretty good. And then we rolled it out to a much bigger data set, and it said that eighty percent of Americans had drink in Fresca over the last six weeks. And we said, all right, this is not good enough. And even if the rest of the model looked great, and there were one or two other little things there, but the fact that it was able to make that prediction meant that it just wasn't doing what it needed to do to reflect accurately the world. And there's this phrase about that, that's important about like every model is wrong and some are useful, which is important to realize anytime you build a machine learning model. But when it comes to launching products that customers are going to rely on to actually make decisions that are that are important to them and that can make or break their careers, I think you need to have a high bar around what you're doing and probably a much higher bar than most data people think about. And I would say there's not just a higher bar around what you're delivering, but also a higher bar around your explanations to the end customer, client, or whomever about what this is. And you and I have gone back and forth on this quite a bit on LinkedIn. I shouldn't say back and forth. That implies we've had opposing views. I guess we've shared a lot of views about this on LinkedIn. 
where you've probably seen a lot of my rants where I'll just sort of occasionally drop a note of, hey, here's a harsh reality around machine learning models. Um, one of my favorites, I believe this was an Emmanuel Derman quote from his book, Models Behaving Badly. Uh, for those listeners who aren't aware, Emmanuel Derman, very famous quant from way back when. And one of the points he raises is, you know, you have to remind yourself, a model by definition is not the real thing. Now, when you say it, of course, it sounds obvious. I mean, it's, it's a model. Of course, it's not the real thing. But when, when we think about machine learning models, we are doing our best to approximate a real-world process based on a limited data set. It's not reality. We have to go in explaining to clients as well as ourselves that this is going to be wrong some percentage of the time. You, as the client or end user or whomever, need to understand that at a high level. And from that, businesses and stakeholders and product managers and all of that need to sit down and ask themselves, what level of performance from this model is acceptable? What level of error can we tolerate? Because if you don't set those baselines early on, it's very easy to get yourself wrapped up in this trap of just keep tweaking it. Eventually, we'll get the performance we want. Technically, you might not ever. Yes, 100%. I mean, this is, to, to me, the most important thing in data machine learning products is what can go wrong. And if you have a deep understanding and an acceptance of the way that things can go wrong and you decide to move forwards, then you're in a great place. And there are some data products that actually being wrong is totally fine. So for example, at Nielsen, we had a business, uh, it, it, Grace Note is a company that's owned by Nielsen. And I was, I was, the, the Grace Note had a sports business and I was pretty close to them. They had a metal predictor model for the Olympics. And it was because they do a lot of sports data stuff. So they predicted, they predicted who would win what medals and which countries would win what. And it was a lot of fun and people loved it. And, you know, newspapers and other people would like go against the predictions. But ultimately, everybody knew. And everybody understood that those were going to be wrong. And that was totally fine. It was totally fine when those were wrong. It, because from a use case perspective, there were no problems. On the opposite side, you know, early on in the machine learning, deep learning uh, sort of innovation that's happened, essentially since like 2012 and ImageNet and all of that, yeah. you know, there were these like expectations that, oh, radiologists are going to be gone in five years because really all they do is look at pictures. And by the way, machine learning models can look at pictures at scale far cheaper and far better than doctors can. And what we have found in reality is that 99% doesn't work when it's life and death situations, right? And so, yes, are there are there cases and are there things where computers will augment the type of work and machine learning models can help help with certain workflows and other things around what radiologists are doing themselves? Very, very likely, yes. But this idea that radiologists will will the idea back then was that by now radiologists would have all been out of a job and uh, that has not happened. And there is no expectation of that happening. Similar to self-driving cars, huge, huge backtrack. It's five years ago, 
it was imminent that within a year or two, all cars would be self-driving. Now people, there's some limited self-driving functionality around like highway driving. And like, I've been in the auto driving Teslas, like they're cool, but it's not, it's not, it's not what people thought where, you know, the CEO of Uber got on a late night show and said, well, we're just not going to have any drivers in a year or two because we're going to have all automated cars. None of that has actually happened. And I don't see that it's going to happen. So that, and, and it's all, it's not because the models are any different. It's not anything about the technology. If anything, the models are a lot better. The only thing is that people miscalibrated the cost of being wrong and really it's the cost of being wrong that drives all of that. I can think of two examples to support your point on that. You know, one is Zillow. Uh, they went into iBuying a couple of years ago. For listeners yep. who aren't familiar with this, that's when, and a couple of other companies were in this space as well. I think Open Door is one, I'm drawing a blank on the others. But the idea is that Zillow and a few other companies said, selling your house or buying a home, it's a pain in the neck. Because if you've never done this before, dear listeners, you have to have a bunch of strangers traipsing through your home at short notice to come through. They're going to look at things, make a decision, and you have to do the same when you go to buy a property as well. And so these iBuying companies said, what if we could use data to essentially size up and provide a value for the property without having to have a bunch of strangers traipsing through your home and all of that? It was a great idea. But it ultimately didn't pan out. And Zillow had to shut down their iBuying units, I think sometime November last year, whatever it was. And I bring this up here because at the time, a lot of people tried to blame the AI. They said, oh, well, Zillow had all this data. They were using AI to price these homes. And they ended up overpricing them for buying them. And they weren't able to sell them back. They lost a lot of money. And so people tried to say that, oh, this is because of the AI. The AI was wrong. And they said, no. Getting back to your point, Solomon, I don't think the problem was with the AI. Uh, I think the problem was in risk management or a lack thereof. If you're going in trying to be a market maker for semi-fungible assets that have very weird liquidity, let's say they have no liquidity, and you're going in trying to flip those, you need to have really good risk management. You need to sit down and ask yourself, what happens if we are wrong, if the models are wrong, and pace the business accordingly. But based on everything I've read about Zillow, it sounds like they missed that key step of asking, hey, let's slow this down a bit, try it for a while, and then try to grow it and take a lot to properties. Yeah, to, to me, all right, I have a, I have a lot to, to say on this, but it, it will we'll keep, keep it to a few headlines. The data had nothing to do with that. Like the, 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 every single person would have told you what every single investment prospectus says on uh, like any anything that you ever look at past performance is not guaranteed future results right so the idea that a data science team is going to be able to determine in the future what houses are going to be worth is is insane off the bat now in this in this case, I think it's all corporate governance issues. There, are, there from a game theory perspective, there are oftentimes some very uh, funky 
funky risk rewards for individuals at companies like this that make them behave in certain ways that if it works, then they make tons of money. And if it doesn't work, then they get fired, but it is inconsequential to the amount of money that they would make. It's like, I can make, you can make a huge amount of money if you're right. And if you're wrong, you go get another job at essentially the same salary with maybe a couple months of, of job search in the middle. So that's a corporate governance issue. And, and in the Zillow case should probably go all the way up to the board because there's obviously some major, major issues there, but it has nothing to do with data. Everybody there knew, knew what was happening and the idea that the message is that, oh, there was something wrong with the data is just, is just completely ridiculous and and no 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 person should take that seriously. And that takes us to the second story I had in mind. And this goes back to what you were saying about autonomous vehicles. I mean, I agree. At some point, the world might have fully autonomous vehicles. I think it's some ways away from today. And look, I get it. When you're running a business, you have to hype things up a bit. And there's always going to be some amount of delta between the present day reality and the hopefully near future vision of some executive trying to sell people on things. I get it. But something else I see, especially coming out of the tech sector, is I feel a lot of the optimism is based on who's going to be left holding the bag when things go wrong. And when it comes to the self-driving cars, we've seen, you know, without naming names, we've seen a couple of companies try to defend themselves against lawsuits by claiming that words such as autopilot don't really mean the vehicle is going to drive itself. And you think when you have to start a language lawyer around the names of the products that way, that's usually not a good sign. Yeah. Um, and so when you flip this around and going back to what you were saying before about radiologists, you know, this takes us to the military. Uh, longtime listeners of this podcast probably already know where I'm going next. There's a really, really good book called Army of None by Paul Scharr. He is a defense industry analyst, former army ranger. And the book is about autonomous weapons and how at least the countries that are willing to talk about them, how they're approaching them. And one of the things I liked about the book and what he explained is that in stark contrast to what we're seeing with the typical tech firm touting the capabilities of AI and autonomous vehicles and all of that, as he said, the company is deploying these autonomous weapons they realize that with one mistake, they can literally start World War III. And what that means is when you're in a combat situation, you have the decision of what to target and the decision of pulling the trigger. And the point is that with the autonomous weapons that he was looking into, the machine never gets both, right? Either the machine guides the human and says that is a potential target, I will let you make the ultimate decision on whether to pull the trigger, or the human designates the targets and says, okay, now you AI go after them, fire or whatever. The idea of letting a machine handle both targeting and execution is just considered complete folly in that field. And one of the things I realized is that, oh, compared to the autonomous vehicle situation is that when the military makes that kind of mistake, they are left holding the bag. There's no way they can go on the apology tour and say, oh, hey, we had a couple of crashes, but it's okay, we're gonna fix it next week. It's like, no. We really goofed and now we have a really big problem. So I do think that there is some level of misplaced optimism that's driving a lot of the misplaced faith in AI products. Yeah, I mean, completely. The 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 thing about AI products, and this is where like 
the corner cases start to matter because in real world, in real world use cases, you end up with a lot of corner cases and humans are uniquely able to look at corner cases of things that have never happened before or things that happen in a slightly different way. And we can generally connect them in, 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 in the way that we, or, or rather I, I, we have, we humans have an expectation around the ways that other people can connect new information to old information, right? If I've only ever seen red cars and there's a purple car that's driving down the road, I still know not to step into the road and get hit by the car, even if I've never seen a purple car before, right? Because the key information that I need to know is that a big vehicle weighing thousands of pounds is going to smush me if I make a certain decision. But AI products don't have that ability if they have never seen a purple car before they might not and some might and some might not and you don't you it, it is not it is intuitive to a person the kind of things that other people should or shouldn't connect to new information it is not intuitive in terms of machine learning products and so in some cases you can constrain the domain and you can constrain the options to where that that's okay. In some cases, you're okay with corner cases looking really bad, right? And that's fine. And that's where I think people have a misunderstanding about things like, you know, with chat GPT stuff, it is amazing 95% of the time. And then the question is, when you scale out that 5%, what, what are the, what does that mean? Right. Like I saw someone talk about ChatGPT programming things for them and like writing functions. And they were like, you know what? It's like pretty good. And I've written a whole bunch of stuff on it, but probably one out of 10 times, it takes me an hour or two to figure out some subtle mistake that it made that I have no idea why that mistake happened or not. And scaling it out, you scale out a lot of those types of mistakes. And so you need to understand. Is that okay? Is that not okay? Where are humans in the loop? Where are humans not in the loop? And Nielsen, we had a lot of, in the sports business, we had a lot of people in the loop because the reality is that we would not have been able to get to the product quality that we wanted without those people in the loop. Pure, pure straight up answer. Now we were challenged in that business by a whole bunch of startups who came in and said, oh, no, we don't, we don't need, we can, we can sell you the exact same data for a lot cheaper. We've got machine learning models. It's like we've got machine learning models too. We, we are more invested than anybody to understand the state of the art in terms of how machine learning models can create this extremely valuable data set. And, and we, we rolled them out to much success. Like we're, we're using them, but the idea that you can take a totally hands-off approach is just not there. And a lot of, a lot of, I mean, nowadays, actually over time, data quality issues had driven a number of people back, back to, to Nielsen, but 
for a little while there, it was more of an existential question. And it's a challenging place to be where just from a, just from a, in, in general strategy perspective, right? How do you navigate in a world where, you know, you've got, you've got this, you know, like selling data quality is not the easiest sell to business people is the truth. Um, but it is important. Data quality is, is a big issue in my mind to the point that Ken Gleason and I even co-authored a chapter in Bad Data Handbook on that very topic, right? But Ken was still in that world and I come from that world of the financial space where data quality is literally everything. If you've got a steady feed of stock prices and there is some quality issue with an upstream vendor, you're going to predict prices the wrong way. You're literally going to lose money. And I, and I do think that Going back to something we touched on earlier in the conversation, there's a lot to be said for helping companies to build more of that cognitive connection, or I guess to reduce that cognitive distance between some end result and the input and the quality of the data that was input to make that happen. Um, which I think leads to an interesting question. You talked about the number of people you had working at Nielsen, essentially being on the loop or in the loop with machine learning models. You know, something I've often said about an ML model is that it, it has no way to say, I don't know, right? Um, this is sort of like going back to your, your example of the purple car. If we have trained a machine learning model to identify truck versus car versus plane, you can hand it a helicopter, something it's never seen before, something that's kind of sort of a plane, but not really. And it's still going to answer truck, car, or plane. It has no way of saying, I, this is weird to me. And I think that's where the humans come in because a human can actually look at an unfamiliar situation and they can say, you know what? I have no idea what's going on here. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get help. So my question to you is, when you think back to your Nielsen days and all of the people involved in the data products, you know, is that a big part of why they were there? To be able to fill in for the machine's inability to say, I don't know. Yes. I mean, we, we th this was our op operations team. Like this was like a real function with hundreds of people. It wasn't like one or two people that would, that would be there to check the models. It was like a fully built out part of the business. Uh, and so, so yes. Okay. So building on that, then we've talked a little bit about data products and how they differ from traditional software products. We've talked a lot about how this surprises people. I would love to shift gears and talk about what it takes to actually build successful data products, what it takes to put a company on the right path, what it means to bring leadership up to speed and building the teams and all of that. What, in your experience, would it take to help a company bridge that gap and start building better data products and to build data products better? I, I actually think it really all starts with the end in mind, which is that you need to get kind of what we talked about at the beginning of this. You need to get super locked in to the money and the impact, right? So, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. When I left Nielsen uh, to go to Helium 10, which is a great company and a great data company, the reason that I went there was because data was uh, existential to the company. It was a core part. People people bought the product because of our ability to help them make 
successful decisions with data. And, and so as a result, like we knew what we needed to do. We knew where the mandate was and we knew why, you know, I'm, I'm starting a company. So I'm doing a lot of sales stuff, right? I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the sales world a little bit now. So, so if you think about, if you think about a sales team, a sales team has a quota and their goal is to hit that quota. And and good sales leaders are able to come in and build process and build 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 guide rails in order to help take a team and give them effective steps to get to that quota. And I would I would argue, uh, you know, they make a, a huge difference in terms of the ultimate success or failure in getting there. But mm -hmm. every individual deal can be a little funky. Like, like, like that, that's normal. Like you'll lose sales. You're gonna, it's gonna, it's not, it's not always pretty in terms of that world, but you've got the end result that is very clear for what you need to get to. And so at the end of the quarter or at the end of the year, you look at that result and you say, I got there or I didn't. Right. And I, I ran the P and the P and L at, 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 at the Nielsen business. It was the same thing. You've got your goal, you've got your strategic initiatives, you've got other things that you're looking for to get to that goal. And yes, it's messy, but without that mess, you would never get to the goal. So do you look at the mess and be scared or do you look at the goal and get excited? And to me, I think that is the reason that you need to do data products in the first place is because there's an opportunity and you need to capitalize on that opportunity. Otherwise your competitors are going to capitalize on that opportunity and make you less relevant as a company. That's, that's, that's the business marketplace. There's no standing still in, in business from a strategy perspective. You're either moving forwards and you're pushing more value to your customers and, and driving more value to the industry, or you're sitting around and someone else is trying to do it and take away your business. So nothing ever stands still. And people are right to look at AI and data products as a new frontier that can help drive new value because it can, because the ability to scale uh, generally good probabilistic decision-making as a, as, a, as a capability and what that can do to people in their day-to-day -day lives is astounding. I mean, like, and, and, and so, so like, for example, uh, are you if if there are multiple delivery food companies, but there's one that always kind of pre gets my order right and knows exactly what I need to get every week and it's one button and the other one, I need to spend 20 minutes going item by item searching for things right like that, the like, there's one that's going to be successful and there's one that's not going to be successful. And, and so yeah, if 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 you if you are just having money flowing in and you don't need to do anything to be innovative in your company and you're just going to be successful no matter what, then you're in a great position. Good luck. I I, I hope that it stays that way forever. But I, I don't I don't know anybody in that position, and that's why data products are important because they allow you to provide more value for your customers. And then, and and then you've got your success bar, which is this is what we need to hit. And then you you do something and you get better at it over time. 
and 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 that's how I would think about it. it it's sort of um, what's the goal and why is it important for your business and how do you get there? And just be ready that it's not going to be pretty. Everybody thinks it's going to be very, very methodological and scientific because it's data science. It's got science in the name, right? So obviously it's going to be, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be very straightforward. Anybody who's actually done science knows that it's not straightforward at all. And it can be very messy in the process of what drives new discoveries and experiments and things that work and don't work in science is also very messy. And data science is no different. No argument there. Although I do have a question. So you talked about this idea of getting better over time. Uh, I would love to talk a little bit about some of the problems companies encountered, how they can get better. And I'd like to start with one in particular. Uh, at the top of this section, you mentioned this idea of you can be afraid of the end result, or you can get excited about the end result. And I agree. I think it's better to be excited about the end result with certain boundaries around it. Something that I have encountered, I'm sure you have encountered, and I'm sure many of our listeners have encountered, is that sometimes stakeholders and even the data scientists themselves get a little too excited. And the excitement leads to a little extra enthusiasm, and that can lead people to turn off that that risk assessment brain, if you will, and just sort of dive headfirst into something that has little chance of working out. So my question to you is, when we're thinking about companies getting better over time, let's start with that very first step, getting excited about the end result. What is What would you say to data scientists who come to you and say, you know, Solomon, my company is just too excited about the end result. I think they're going to drive us down a bad road. What, what should we do? Uh, I mean, you need to have a difficult conversation, right? Is there's a, like, there's, there's a lot of, there's, there's only one way. Well, there, no, there are two ways that, that, that people can uh, be, be disabused of their, their, their thinking that's false, right? Number one is the, the consequences can come and they can learn the hard way. And number two is uh, they can have a conversation with someone or read something or get some new information in their head that helps them think about it before the real world consequences hit them the wrong way. And that's really where the skill comes in on data work. There's technical skill, but there's also the skill of being able to have those kind of conversations with business stakeholders. And I think that that's what makes the difference between a good data leader and a data leader that uh, is sort of not that good is can, do you have the ability to have these types of tough conversations and be taken seriously to where people are going to hear what you say and use that as the way that they're thinking? Now, there are being a data leader is a tough job for many structural reasons, not just your individual skill set. So there's this great saying that is it's very difficult to convince someone against something that their entire livelihood depends on, right? So when you are in one of those situations, you might be a very good data person. You might be up against an impossible situation in terms of someone wanting to change their mind or being able to change their mind. Not that it's impossible, but 
Like there's there's things that there's things that happen in the data world that are under your control, and there are things that happen in the data world that are not under your control. And I would I would but I would say that the the key I, I take a trusted advisor view of data work, which is as a data person, you are not the hero, you're the sidekick. There's someone else who's the hero and you're helping them. And if you are going to be a good sidekick to someone, you need to be totally open and honest about all things, including what's good about your model, what's not good about your model, what could go wrong, why you think it could go right. Like everybody needs to know the important information. And you also need to be ready to, in the right way, say important things that maybe other people don't want to hear. But and and it's not easy like that like i said that's where the skill comes in but you still need to do it and you need to you need to develop the skills to be able to do it in a way that doesn't blow you up because if you do it in the wrong way it will blow you up definitely so thus far we've covered how to handle the business getting a little too excited about the end results and a lot of that ties into the people side of things great what other people hurdles have you seen as far as companies getting too successful data products? There are a lot of things that go into launching a data product. And sometimes there's the expectation that one single person is going to be able to do everything soup to nuts. That That's probably the most common one that I've seen, which is, oh, we've got a data scientist. They're going to work on this product, which, and, and the expectation is that they're going to, it's going to be everything from like being able to do the sort of like user thinking about what the product actually needs to be all the way to deploying it to production. And very, very rarely is someone good at all of the steps across that. I'm actually not going to say that people can't do all of it because the reality is that, especially from the early days and Q, Q you were there from the early days, right? All yeah. of us did it all, right? We had to. <laughs> we had to. So I am I am not going to say that people can't do it all. I actually think that people can do it all. And I think that in some cases, people should do it all, right? If If you are a small company and you've got you are the data scientist. And from a margin perspective, it's not going to make sense for them to hire a lot more data scientists until the business is far enough along. And there's a business problem that is valuable enough for you as the data scientist to solve and to get to production. You figure out a way to get it to production. Like that's that's your job. Like that was that was all of our jobs back in the day. It, it, like when when because the, the, there was no expectation of it, it was it was like you were on commission, right? As a data person, you need to hustle for your paycheck. You need to hustle to make sure. I still think that that is okay. But what I think is very important is to know what you're not good at and to get help. Because the other thing about the early days, and I will certainly say this, like I got by with a lot of help from my data friends. Like I was calling people up at other companies. That's, I mean, that's how we know each other. Right. Totally. It was like, what, like, I've got this situation. I have no idea what to do. What do you, how do you handle this? How are you thinking about it? What are the things that have worked for you or not? I, I remember my first data friend uh, was uh, Fred Benenson. He used to run the data team at Kickstarter. And I knew 
I, at the time he was dating someone that I knew from college and it was just a weird connection. And I, I called her up and I was like, Hey, can you connect me? Like, can you let me talk to Fred for a little bit? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, so I have this new job in data. Like, what do I do? And he like gave me some marching orders. And that was, that's how everybody figured it out. I think nowadays people have this, have this thing because data science is more mature and because people that get into data science, like there's more of an academic track. They think that the academic track is the track. And so if they don't know something, there's a lot more, uh, there, there's sort of, they, they, they think that it means something that more when they don't know something. Whereas back in the day, nobody knew everything and you figured it out. And so now after, you know, over a decade of doing end-to-end stuff, I've seen a lot of things. Can I do something end-to-end? Yes. But even then, I still get help all the time. Like every single company that I've been at, I have hired subject matter expertise consultants at to help me out. Like even when I was at Nielsen, I like, like I, I, I hired, I hired some people who have actually so it's interesting because they've like, like it's a lot of the people that like I've randomly had as people that that helped out have like subsequently become like big names in the data world. So I'm not going to like share share specifics, but it's it, it, and I remember I was I was bringing some people in. They were like, oh, wow, like can't believe that like at Nielsen, I'm bringing people in to help out about something like this. Like Nielsen is like the, you know, hundred year old data company. But that's how you become a hundred year old data company. It's not by sitting back from the knowledge that you had a long time ago and saying, oh yeah, I know everything and that's it. It's understanding that everything is always changing. And if you're not constantly learning more and, and getting the knowledge that you need, then you're going to be in a bad spot. And listen, some of the business fundamental things I think are 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 timeless. I don't think that needing to tie data results to business value is ever going to change and it, but which data warehouse should I choose right now? How should I partition my data in order to be able to query it effectively? Like how should like all of that kind of stuff or how should I be thinking about streaming versus micro batch versus different like like all of that it changes and you need to you need to learn from people who know and don't feel bad about not knowing and 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 get the help that you need yeah i've often said that and well especially in western business culture we are taught that i don't know is is a sinful question to ask and very early in my career i learned no it's a great question to ask because step 1 if i don't know something i can't be effective and step 2 and this is something for all the listeners out there, especially those who are maybe newer to the data science field. I can guarantee you, if you're in a large enough room and you raise your hand and say, I don't understand that, can you please explain? There are several other people who had the same thought. They just didn't have the guts to raise their hand. There, are, there is always something that someone doesn't know. And I think being able to ask that question is really important. And also to something you said a minute ago, about how back in the old days, we had to do things, we had to hustle, we had to figure it out. I was sort of jotting down some notes here and I realized that, yeah, today, it's 2023 as we're recording this, the data field is still in some of its wild days, if you will, but it's matured a fair amount. And there are just a lot more resources, there's a lot more learning material, there's a lot more tooling. 
and a lot more best practices that people can lean on if they are completely new to the field. And that sort of occurred to me that, oh, yes, those of us who are there at the beginning, we're the ones who set those best practices by doing things the hard way. So, you know, back then, being able to say, I don't know, let's figure this out. Half the time we're working with people who say, well, yeah, I wouldn't say that I know the answer. It's just, I did this last week and it worked for me. So you try it. Eh, I don't know. And this is kind of how we get to where we are, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it is. And, and some things change over time. Things that used to work don't work anymore, right? So it's, <laughs> it's but it's, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting. And it's, 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 it's a fun adventure to be on. And I think the key is to be very goal oriented and where you need to get to and be rock solid about that business impact that it's going to have. Cause as long as you get that nailed, you're going to be fine. If, if something, if, if something is messy, but makes money and then you can make it less messy over time, it's going to be okay. But if you miss on the money part, there's no fixing that. Let's take that for a second and ask ourselves, if we're talking about companies getting better, talking about companies actually making the money on the data products, it seems like most of what companies can do to bridge that gap to building better data products, it's really about people, right? And so something I think the listeners might find interesting is that in, in the tech space in general and in the data space in particular, we tend to think a lot about tooling, right? This is the best tool for this, 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 and this. And something I keep coming back to in my career is that tooling is important, yes. Process and procedure is important, yes. But it keeps coming back to the people. And it seems like everything you're saying about companies building better data products boils down to the people. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it's like you can give an amazing artist my kids' watercolors and they would come up with something that looked good, but if you gave me their professional artist studio, it would be a disaster, right? The tools, the tools can accelerate the work that you're doing and are very important. I don't think tool, because I think that fit for purpose tools are crucial when you know your purpose, right? But the idea that the tools are what drive the success as opposed to the people using the tools. I think that that, that is, I think it is hundred percent the people using the tools. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think that is a good off ramp for us. I know that you are busy building this new company. I want to be mindful of the time I ask of your schedule. So as we sort of shift gears here, start to close this out, something I like to ask guests as we're wrapping up just a couple of quick questions i mean one you've been in this field for a long time you've seen the ins and outs the fun stuff some of the the crazy gritty side of it what what guidance would you have for someone who's interested in joining these this field these days right i could even flip that around would you recommend that people join this field these days yeah uh yes i love data work uh it it's great because uh, it gives you a huge opportunity to make an impact and is really only limited by your skills. Like, for example, I, I, I came from finance. If you want to get an investment banking job, you have to go to a certain Ivy League school and get, get 
certain things that happen very specifically. And anyone else who's interested in that is kind of out of luck, right? With data, the only thing that matters is are you good or are you not? And you can demonstrate your ability to do good data work via projects that have no one stopping you but yourself, right? And you can get good at all of these different skills. And even when you get into a company, data work has boundaries around its job somewhat, but you get access to power as a data person. I, I remember because in I had, a, I had a little bit, my, my finance job was a little bit funky um, in that I was sort of, I was like the analyst for the management team. I wasn't just like a standard securities analyst. And so it was like, they, they had started a whole bunch of businesses in finance over 30 years. And so I got to see like a huge cross section of things. It was an amazing experience. And I was in rooms where I was 20 plus years younger than all of the other people in those rooms. And they were talking about things that I would never have gotten access to if I wasn't in a job where I was doing analysis for them, right? You as an analyst, you get to see the inside view of the chief marketing officers and the chief finance officers and people who have spent their whole careers mastering their craft, you get the you get the access to them and you get the benefit of their experiences. So number one, it gets to you get to accelerate your learning about business or about the domain that you're in in a way that few other people get to do. And secondly, they're they're trusting you with their questions, but really the questions that they're asking you are an invitation for you to solve their problems. And there's really no problem that you can't solve for them. And there's no cap on your potential impact. So if you can figure out how to make your company, you know, a hundred million dollars a year, that's something that you drove. And is that going to lead to career success for you? Absolutely. And there's no no real roadblock to it, except for your own ability to drive that impact. And so that that's why I love data work. And I like, I, I like, I, I just think it's a great field. And I think that uh, for me personally, I love it. Now we can flip that question around. Let's talk about someone who's looking to hire someone in the data field, whether that's a data scientist, machine learning engineer, AI researcher, or what have you. What advice would you give to companies looking to hire in this field? The When I first started hiring data people, I made, uh, I, I made, I made, I made what, like, like every new manager in any field, you have to learn a little bit the hard way, right? Sure. So, so, so I used to really, and data people are still pretty rare. So I used to always think about like, how do I find good data people and just throw them in? And because I and you, we were, we came from the, the world of sink or swim, figure it out. That's sort of what I did. It was like, come on in. You're smart as a data person. You have enough, enough credentials or you've got a PhD or you've got this. Sure. Come on in and figure it out. And what I have subsequently, so, okay. And that, that, that in many cases worked, but in many cases failed. And when it failed, it failed pretty, pretty badly. And what I, what I 
quickly figured out uh, around hiring data people is that it is not at all, the main thing is not about your your skills as a data person because there's no data person that like it's we're not uniform. Data people walk into the building with various strengths and weaknesses. And I personally have various strengths and weaknesses, right? And the thing that matters is do the do the particular strengths in data for that person line up with the strength that someone in the role that you're putting them needs. And, and that, that is the thing that matters. When it comes to companies at the senior leadership level, I think that business orientation and business experience is crucial because the most important impact, the, the, the most important impact that they're going to have is only going to happen if the senior leader is able to have a peer relationship with the other executives at the company. And and so as a result, being able to have that type of relationship is really important. So, so I think from a leader, it's, are they really strong on the business side and are they able to effectively manage on the data side? I think for every different data job you're going to have, there's going to be a different set of skills that are important. And so even when I'm interviewing people now, I don't think about it as, are you a good data person? Or are you a bad data person? I mean, sometimes you find people who have just totally embellished what they've done and all that other stuff. And that's, that's bad, but it's less about, are you good or bad? It's more about, are you a good fit? I like that. To close out, uh, I suspect that people who have been listening to us for the last, however long this conversation has been going, are now very interested in you and what you have to say and what you're up to. So Solomon, where do people find you? Sure. So uh, the best place to find me is actually on LinkedIn. So Solomon Khan, all O's. And actually, I'll probably be in the the title of this podcast episode. So you can look at the spelling there. K-A-H-N. Follow me on LinkedIn. I post every day. And uh, yeah, that's the best place to find me. Yeah, I will. I will second you on that. Uh, People, please follow Solomon on LinkedIn. He's got some really good posts out there. Some deep thoughts about data. The occasional fun bits as well. Highly recommended. And last but not least, once again, I'm so excited about your new adventure at Delivery Layer. How is your company growing right now? Are you looking to bring people in? Are you hiring? So we're in like a Schrodinger's hiring situation, depending on uh, when you listen to this episode, we will probably hopefully be hiring, but maybe not. And it, you know, we're, we're, we, we sort of hiring as we're growing. So follow me on LinkedIn, and when there are jobs, uh, I will post about them. That sounds awesome. Solomon Khan, thank you so much for spending some time chatting with me and chatting with the listeners on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm sure they will appreciate it as well, and we look forward to catching up again soon. All right, great. Thanks, Q. Have a great day.